Well, welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly, and this is part four of our discussion that we've been having on how to prepare students well, how to face the cultural challenges and help instill a faith that endures. And so uh, part four, we're coming back to Dr. John Marriott. He joined us part one talking about how pas- uh, how churches and parents are preparing students to lose their faith. This week, we're going to be talking about how parents and pastors and churches can instill a faith that endures. So if you missed that first part of our conversation, Dr. John Marriott serves as in the Philosophy of Religion and Ethics Department at Biola University, also in the Institute for Religious Studies at the Missional University. He's a former pastor, holds an MA degree from Biola, as well as an MA in philosophy from uh, in religion from Talbot School of Theology, and has his PhD in intercultural studies from Cook School of Intercultural Studies. So, John, thanks for joining me again and discuss this uh, second part of your book. Oh, Ryan, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Look forward to it. Yeah, I, I loved the, the, the first part of our conversation. I even had a few comments on that discussion on our Facebook Live post even a student saying, hey, this is the exact problem that we're going, that's go, we're going on at our church of how students are going off to college, they're leaving the faith, and their pastors and parents are shocked. They're surprised. They did not see it coming. And so I think that's what we're talking about is this is happening and, and people are not aware of what is actually happening with their own children sometimes. Right. The numbers are large. The question is whether or not some of these folks were born again or whether they genuinely weren't born again. And um, that's a theological discussion. I think some of the things that I try to say in the book are really important, regardless of where someone stands on that position, because um, whether or not we are sometimes creating situations where someone ends up with a crisis of faith faith or a loss of faith, we need to uh, take a look in the mirror and ask if we're playing any kind of a role in that. So while I use the word deconversion and deconvert, and I talk about people who were once Christians, I don't assume that they were all genuinely born again, but wherever one stands on this issue, I think that the four things I point out in the book are are important to take into consideration because uh, even if you can't lose your salvation, even if one can't commit apostasy, uh, we don't want to set people up for a crisis of faith that uh, brings them to the brink of that. So um, I'm glad that today we're going to talk about some of the ways that we can not just avoid doing that, but some of the positive things that we can do in their place. Absolutely. And I think that is such a great point. I'm glad you started with that. And I was going to ask you about it, is that there are some comments made kind of after part one. It's like, well, if if these kids are, you know, it seems like more they're just losing an affinity with Christianity. They were never really in the church to begin with. You know, they, they might have gone to church, but it was because their parents made them. They weren't really in the church. But I think, I mean, they are in the church. They're with us. They're, they're growing up. They're learning these things. They are attending the services. And so it is our responsibility, even if they were never fully interested, maybe we should be doing something to get them more interested or finding ways to really reach the hearts and the minds of those students. Yeah. And, and um, along with that, I, I often hear the re- rejoinder, these, these kids were never saved or not even these kids. These people were never saved. And so, you know what? It, it doesn't really matter. And what I want to say is I, whenever I hear that response really quickly is I, I, I tend to think that uh, although that is a genuine theological position to have and, and many people hold it, it seems to me that the knee-jerk reaction that I get uh, from, from folks uh, who immediately go there is almost to make themselves uh, perhaps feel better and to downplay these these people who have had genuine crises of faith, because I'm not just talking about people who had an affinity for church and went there because their parents, 
I'm talking about people who are in the pulpit and in the in, in conservative evangelical uh, churches for years, uh, mm-hmm. former missionaries, former pastors, former worship leaders, former seminary professors. I mean, all of these people are are, are folks who have had crises of, of faith. And so I, I, I want to always be careful to say it's easy just to, to make ourselves feel better and say, ah, they were never saved to begin with and, and not really wrestle with what has brought people to the precipice of either losing their faith or losing their faith. Absolutely. That's so good that it's not just happening with students. So today we're talking with Dr. John Marriott. A Recipe for Disaster is his book, Four Ways Churches and Parents Are Preparing Individuals to Lose Their Faith and How They Can Instill a Faith That Endures. So really quick, uh, this part one, we discussed uh, the four ways in which parents and and pastors and churches are doing this. But for those who missed it, and just a quick refresher, uh, I want to work through these four really quick. So, uh, John, uh, what is your first thing uh, uh, about when you talk about we are over-preparing students? Right. So over-preparing is when we say, this is what Christianity is. Take it or leave it. It's an all-or-nothing kind of a package. And instead of it being just the you know, the essentials that you need to believe and the important doctrines that you should have a position on. It is a large raft of beliefs, and all of them have uh, equal importance. And if you pull one out, the whole system falls with it. And so when uh, someone has a doubt, uh, perhaps maybe about a, a particular doctrine, and they're, they're not quite sure that they think this anymore, or they even come to disbelieve a doctrine, then they say, okay, well, I guess I can't be a Christian then. So that would be number one. Yeah, so that, I mean, that even includes stuff, as we mentioned last time, of, you know, should you be able to play cards on a Friday night or a Saturday night or something of that sort? And and, and almost thinking, that, well, if, yeah, if you play cards on Sunday, you're definitely not a Christian. Uh, so even very fringe things like that. Uh, number two, you talked about students who are underprepared. We're underpreparing people. What is that talking about? Yeah, it's, it's when uh, students have um, university questions in kind of a Sunday school faith. Mm-hmm. They feel um, out of place and they have a little bit of vertigo going from church to the world throughout the rest of the week, where in church they're talking about miracles and Jesus walking on water and talking animals in the Bible, all of which, by the way, I I, I believe, and I'm not disparaging any of that, but then they go off to university or they go into their workaday world, and they're, for all intents and purposes, in the modern West, we are becoming so secular that we are practical atheists, right? Uh, There's not a lot of supernatural activity or even uh, references to the the supernatural. Our, Our world is, in the West, is becoming more and more secular. God has less and less of a place, and so it can feel on a kind of a gut level that uh, what we believe is really at a step with the, the world that that is around us, and we haven't done a great job of helping folks analyze the culture well to know why that's the case, and then giving them some responses and some answers on how the Christian worldview, although it won't always be, it will always have some mystery to it, and it will always have things into in it that may, maybe will be strange to us, um, still is reasonable. Uh, number three, the third way that uh, churches and parents are doing this is that they are ill preparing their students. Well, what do you mean by this one? Yeah, ill prepared is when uh, we perhaps only give them a partial or an incomplete picture of some very important biblical concept, and maybe the best one is uh, on who God is. God is good and loving and kind, but He's also severe and He is also just and He is also holy. And, and he has told us that there will be suffering in our world, that there will be hardship that will go on. We have seen, you know, people throughout 
God's people throughout the Bible uh, lose their lives and, and be tortured and spend three days and three nights, the Paul did, in, in the deep. And, and a lot of uh, these things uh, we don't think will ever happen to us. And then when they do, we say, wait a minute, uh, what's going on here? I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a follower of God. And, and so why does this bad stuff happen to me? Because if I live for him, this is, this is what I should get. This reciprocity is that my life should be blessed. And, and I, I, and I think that when we don't give people a full and complete picture on the nature of God or maybe what it means to believe when it comes to the gospel, we tell people you need to believe and people say, Oh, I believe. Of course I believe. So I guess I'm going to heaven and I'm saved. And yet they don't really understand that concept. So we ill prepare them by setting them up with incomplete beliefs that set them up, that, that plant in them expectations. And when those expectations are unmet, there is this kind of crisis that goes on and they're not sure what they believe anymore. Well, and how many students do you meet uh, that if you get a little bit further down the road than uh, Jesus died for your sins? Well, why did he have to die? Uh, why was that death necessary? What is it, exactly does that mean? How did his death cover our sins? Uh, how many can actually explain that? Correct. Correct. So theologically, there is it's, it's very shallow at times. Yeah. Yeah. I often relate it to, you know, if I were to ask my grandpa, you know, tell me about grandma and, and all you can say is she's five foot two and, you know, and has, uh, you know, blonde brown hair and, uh, you know, her name is this, you know, it's like, no, tell, really tell me about her. Well, that's all I know. What do you expect? Right. There's not a relationship there. You but I really much... believe that about her, but I really believe those things about yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. All right. So our fourth way, uh, fourth reason, as we finish this kind of summary of, of our first conversation together, uh, we didn't really get to this one. So this might be a little bit of new information. Uh, but the fourth thing that you talked about is those that are painfully prepared. What exactly do you mean by this? Painfully prepared folks are those who have been wounded and hurt by either people in, in leadership and ministry or those just kind of rank and file believers in the pew and in the church who have either judged them harshly or they've seen hypocrisy in or there's been some moral failures and there are loads and loads and loads of people for whom the intellectual road to apostasy was really paved by uh, emotional hurts and wounds. Uh, and, and they've said, look, if this is the kind of people that Christianity produces and this is a representation of who God is, then I don't want to have anything to do with this because these people are, are hurtful. Um, they have judged me when I needed someone um, you know, they put me down. There was a gentleman who I, I, I spoke with not long ago who lost his faith. And, and I know that some of our listeners will say, wow, this is a, a terrible thing to lose your, your faith over. And, and, and I, I agree. But for him, what really started him off down the road was he was going through a divorce and uh, he ended up getting cancer. And he was told by some of the people at his church that the reason that he got cancer was because he was going through a divorce and it was God's judgment on him. My goodness. Right. And you see this even now with the recent passing of Rachel Held Evans. It doesn't take long to find comments that say this was God's judgment uh, upon her. And and people in the church uh, who are sensitive and, and who realize they don't have all of their stuff together look around and say, well, if this is what I'm going to get and this is how I'm being treated, then I, I don't want to be a part of this. Well, do you think that has anything to to go along with as we hear some people, you know, oftentimes in the politics community, you hear quotes where, you know, uh, I forget exactly who says it off the top of my mind, but you know, where people says, you know, I don't want to let uh, let a divine foot in the door. You know, I don't want I don't want to worship a divine dictator. And and really, they have this kind of either this hurt from the church or a negative view of Christianity. And you know, I just don't want to believe in a god that's like that. I don't want to believe in the misogynistic, you know, homophobic, you know, racist, infanticidal god of the Old Testament. Oh yeah, uh, one of the gentlemen who I interviewed, um, he is almost like the uh, anti Ryan Pauly. Uh, this guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> he he is like your mirror opposite. He is uh, he has a podcast. He is uh, very active in the atheist community, doing debates and uh, atheist apologetics. But you know, he got saved in high school. Really was going on for the Lord. Pretty committed, and then ended up losing his faith. And and then now. Um, he is an atheist apologist. And in, in our conversation, he asked me, how, you know, why, if God really wants people to believe in him, doesn't he just peel the sky apart and manifest himself? And I said, well, if he did that, would you believe in him? And he said, well, sure, I would believe in him. I, I, I said, well, what do you mean by believe? And he said, well, I would do what he wants. I would give him what he wants. He wants me to acknowledge his existence. And I said, well, I think that's maybe where you have a misunderstanding. God's not concerned with you acknowledging his existence. I'm not really quite sure he cares so much that you're willing to acknowledge his existence. What he wants you to do is he wants you to acknowledge your sin and submit yourself to him in a creature creator relationship. If God split the sky open and did that, would you would you then do that? And he said, never. Yeah. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because I will never worship a God like that. Absolutely. And then he listed off all of the uh, horrible things that he saw in the Bible. And I, I reminded him then that if he is unwilling then to worship God, then uh, he can't ask God for more evidence because if God give him, gave him more evidence, he clearly wouldn't be willing to accept it, which would just make him more damnable. Yeah. So when he says, why isn't God giving me more evidence? The answer is because he's gracious to you. That almost word for word kind of goes along with a recent video I put out on YouTube of, of why doesn't God just reveal himself to everyone if he wants everyone to believe? And it's that that wouldn't cause them to believe. Maybe they might say that he exists, but they would not become worshipers of him. That's the right. That certainly yeah. desire relationship. And I believe that him not doing that is part of his graciousness is that, yes, you would become more damnable and uh, things would be a lot worse. And so he is loving and gracious to you by not revealing himself in that way. Yep. All right. Well, in our uh, last half, uh, let's jump into your last part. I guess it's not the last half of your book, but uh, uh, let's get into the last part of how do we, uh, how do, what do we do? And even Jimmy uh, wrote in on Instagram and says, what is your best advice for youth pastors and advice for parents? Uh, so I guess we'll kind of work through these a little bit. I have a few specific questions, but in your first one, I think uh, is important because you talk about the tyranny of necess- necessary of all of these necessary doctrines you have to hold to uh, to be a Christian. And you kind of say, in contrast to this, let's propose the tranquility of sufficient. Uh, so what is this idea that you are trying to propose instead of this long list of doctrines you have to hold to to be a Christian? Well, so what I would say is there's a difference between doctrines that are necessary and those and those are that are sufficient. So w- the the problem with the tyranny of of the necessary is that you have to buy into the all or nothing perspective or the all or nothing package that's being handed to you. And all, and and almost in every case, you you know you don't need to buy into all of those uh, doctrines to to be a Christian. Now I'm not saying that the only doctrines that a Christian should hold to are those that are essential for salvation and essential for orthodoxy. I'm not saying that that's that, that those are the only important ones, but I'm saying that those ones are the ones that are really important and that if you hold on to those, then that you're sufficient to be a Christian both salvifically and, and in an orthodox kind of a way. And those would be the ones that I would say have been distilled throughout church history in the creeds. Now, where the creeds are unbiblical, you know, if they are, if you find a place where you say, like, I don't think I agree with this part of the creed, then, of course, the Bible is the final criterion. But the church has done a really a uh, good job of thinking well at what are the important beliefs that put you in the kingdom and then what are those that give you 
right belief. Uh, and I think that the essential early creeds, Nicaea, Apostles, Chalcedon, I think those are the ones that we say, th- this is what is really important to hold to. I want my kids to be able to say, as a Christian, this is what I believe. Now, are there other beliefs that are important? Yes, there are other beliefs that are important. But what I want to say to my kids on those is, look, they are not essential beliefs, but you should think about them because as a disciple of Jesus, you do want to form opinions on what his word teaches. So what would be an example of one of those? Of one of what? The the essential things that you should think about, uh, but maybe is not uh, unnecessary. All right. So now this, of course, is somewhat subjective, right? And people who will hear this might say, whoa, I think that it is an essential one. But I would say something like uh, the interpretation of Genesis chapter one through three. Is it literal six days? Is it old earth? Is it a framework? You know what? I, I think that you can say God is the creator. That is an essential doctrine to hold and that God created and that man is made in God's image. I think those are all extremely important doctrines to hold. But how and he did it in the time period, I would say, listen, I, these are up for debate and these are up for discussion and you don't have to believe exactly what I believe or you can't be a Christian. Another one would be on on hell. I think that uh, the Bible is not ambiguous. I think hell exists. I think it's a real place. But what exactly is the nature of that? There are various positions on this. And you can go, as you know, to any Christian bookstore and find about 34 different volumes of of books that are all titled variously things like Four Views On, Four Views On, yep. Four Views On. And so I think that there, those kinds of beliefs, once you get outside of those core beliefs about the personhood of Christ, his salvation by grace, his work on the cross, the Trinity, and I'm not listing a, I'm not giving you a list of comprehensive ones here. So I'm sure I know that there are others that um, I want to be able to say we need to have a flexible faith when it comes to those. Okay. So then from that perspective, what would you say is like the mere Christianity you need to understand and know this in order to be saved and be considered a Christian? Right. I would go back. I would go back to the. So the. So do you mean to be saved or to be theologically orthodox? Well, I think that then that's where I, I kind of uh, want to lay out the distinction for those listening is is that there is those things that you reject and you are no longer orthodox, but you can be a Christian and not fully understand. Right. So you can't. Maybe you don't understand Jesus as a God man, and I would not say that you have to understand the God man aspect of Jesus in order to be a Christian and be orthodox necessarily. But if you understand that, and then you go, no, Jesus was not fully man, then now you're rejecting part of that. Right. So there is a really important distinction that I'm glad that you bring up, and that's the difference between affirming and denying. So you may not need to affirm uh, the deity of Jesus when you become a Christian. I, 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 I'm. I think probably the vast majority of people who come to know Jesus uh, and become followers of his don't know that at the time of their conversion. Certainly the thief on the cross didn't know that Jesus was, you know, God in the flesh. But there, but that's different than saying, well, I deny this. So, for yeah. example, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other groups will say, look, that is just false and that is not true. So there are some doctrines that it seems like you need to be correct on and that you have to uh, be, have right belief on because if you don't, your belief is not making a connection with reality, and you need to make that co- connection or hook up to reality. Otherwise, you're believing in something that will not be able to save you. If you, you know, if I say, "Do you believe in Jesus, Ryan?" and you say, "Yes," and I say, "Whew, boy, I'm glad Ryan is a Christian." And but then uh, someone comes along and says, "Hey, but Ryan, who is Jesus?" and you say, "Well, you know, Jesus, uh, he lives down the street." 
And uh, he's like <laughs> yeah, seven feet tall. He's a basketball player. He's got a promising NBA career. Uh, he's from Sweden. Then I go, oh, wait a minute. We're not talking about the same Jesus here. And Paul yeah. talks about that uh, in Corinthians where he says, I'm afraid if someone preaches another gospel or another Jesus that you would believe them. And so uh, there needs to be a sufficient amount of correct belief. And you don't necessarily have to affirm all of the things that are true about Jesus, but you can't deny some of these really big ones that the early church said were essential. And then, though, the point I think you also made is that as you develop and grow in your faith, you then start affirming more and more things, right? If you're left with an elementary understanding of who Jesus is and you've been a Christian for 30 years, that goes back to our first problem that we discussed. Yes, and what I want to say is is that as a disciple of Jesus— Jesus says, you know, the disciple is one who who brings out old things and new from his word. And so I would want to say, I want to go, I want my kids, or I want those who I'm working with to to spend more time in getting to know Jesus. I want them, though, to become, and I, and I don't even know if I should bring this distinction up because I'm afraid it will get me in trouble, but I want to make sure that they're followers of Jesus and not just Christians. And what I mean by that is that sometimes it's easy to say, well, a Christian is, and then you just affirm all of these propositional beliefs. I want them to say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm committed to, to him. And because of that, I, I spend time in his word getting to know it so I can know him better, so I can live more according to what he wants me, how he wants me to live. And I am persuaded in, to varying degrees uh, that his word teaches this here. So I, tr- I, w- I want to come at it that way, as opposed to saying, well, if you're a Christian, these are all the things that you have to believe. So part of following Jesus is being involved in a local body. And this kind of goes along with the second way that you say that we can instill a faith that endures is that be acclimated in in Christian community and and understand things so we're not shocked by the culture. I often have students ask me questions like, you know, can you be a Christian and just not go to church? Like, how do we help believers understand the importance of the body of Christ and of the local church? Yeah, the the church is is um, sometimes an untapped and sometimes underwhelming uh, resource. And what I mean by that is, is that it's underwhelming at times because Jesus actually says that this is how all men will know that you're my disciples. If A, you have love for one another, and B, this is how the world will know that you sent me, as he's praying to his father, that they may be one, that the world will know that you have sent me. And Jesus' final apologetic is that he can come into the lives of people and he can radically change them. If you look at the church in Philippi, who do you have? You have the first three converts are Lydia, a wealthy Asian woman. Uh, You have um, the Greek uh, slave girl, if she became a believer, low class. And then you have the middle class Roman jailer. So you may have three different backgrounds and three different economic strata and and three different social uh, standings. And what do you have when Paul writes them this letter? He writes to them with almost no criticism. He talks to them about the joy of serving Jesus and how he's happy that they're all walking together. And he encourages them to stay humble and let the Spirit of God continue to do its work. And so I think that the greatest apologetic can really be that Jesus can take these different people and change their lives and make them into this family. And who else can do that but him? A cert, like a, a truth can't do it, that's for sure. But this person really can. But unfortunately, we're, we're kind of an underwhelming apologetic because we really haven't maybe done such a good job of, of representing him to the world in the way that he, he has called us to. But the second thing I, I want to say really quickly is, 
is that the church is really important because one of the ways that people maintain belief is, is through the presence of what sociologist Peter Berger has called plausibility structures. And plausibility structures are those social institutions that carry ideas and that make ideas seem normal and give them their, their legitimization. And so when, if you look at the United States in the early 1900s, uh, even up to the 1950s, there is this kind of understanding that you're a Christian nation and that there's prayer that goes on in school and there's prayer that goes on at government meetings at the beginning of every session of Congress. And there's talk about God and there's God bless America. And, and, and there are institutions like the church that are respected and that hold a significant place in society. And so being a part of that allows you to say, yeah, what I believe is good and it makes sense. But when those plausibility structures are eroded, it is much harder for a person to hold on to faith. And so the church is a plausibility structure. It is the main plausibility structure for the continuance of the Christian faith and being involved in a really good, healthy church with other people that allows you to connect with them and connect with God is is really powerful to help you say, yes, this really is true. I will step out and go to class Monday at UCLA and I will wrestle with these ideas. But when I come back here and I'm with these people, I can say, yes, this is true. And I'm reminded and refreshed of it. So spiritual formation and being connected to the church is incredibly important in a culture where these plausibility structures are shrinking when it comes to support and belief in God and actually are becoming more hostile. Yeah, and this is a conversation I had with J.P. Moreland on the show maybe a few months ago whenever I interviewed him. Uh, we talked about because of the scientism and secularism of our culture, that it's pushing Christianity outside the plausibility structure where people hear about uh, th Christian things and they immediately write it off as that's not possible and they don't even get it consideration the same way that you know someone talking about a flat earth, you just immediately write them off. And yes, so that, we need that, people. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we only have a few minutes left. And again, so much great information uh, in this book uh, talking about how to deal with, uh, you know, the errors in the Bible and, and, and dealing with students who deal with that. And I think that's a huge one that I don't want to get to right now in our last minute, but that's one thing I bring up when I do atheist role plays with students. I will often bring up all of the problems and apparent errors and contradictions in the Bible, and that's what shocks them the most. And they have a wrong view of how to deal with those errors that I'm actually going to talk about on the podcast next week uh, discussing the atheist role play. Uh, but going to what you finished with right there and to finish the show today, you talked about the importance of the church doing spiritual formation and, and actually working in the lives of the believers. And I had a recent conversation uh, with a person who, who wrote this to me, and they said, when the church says it wants to equip and empower its members, what does it look like? How is this played out or is it even happening? Here are some ministries in the local church. Here are some in the local community outreach, but nothing involving intellectual growth or providing any resources to actually help equip the people to engage with a skeptical culture. Nothing involving spiritual growth, just loving on people. And so what are your thoughts on this idea of the church doing more and, and going, moving beyond just loving people and really doing spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines and spiritual growth with people? Yeah, I, I think that we have historically in the evangelical world been very propositional, very head-directed, and our our understanding and, and our uh, spiritual growth is you need to read the Bible more and, and maybe pray more. And I am all for reading and, and praying more. But I do know that just gaining more truth and gaining more information does not do much to actually change me and and cause me to be someone who um, becomes more and more like Jesus. It causes me in some ways to have more information um, about what I'm supposed to look like, but I'm, I'm not actually 
progressing in that regard the way I would like to. And that's where I think spiritual formation is really important. And although I'm no expert on, on spiritual formation, there are spiritual disciplines that the church has historically used that evangelicals have kind of moved away from because it's maybe more orientated towards uh, maybe like a, a mystical tradition or a liturgical tradition. And I think that those things can be really helpful because when I see that I am really changing and I'm really growing, um, that can bolster and encourage my faith as opposed to I'm just getting more information, but I'm not really changing. I'm still yelling at my kids. I'm still having road rage on the freeway. I'm, I'm still, you know, lying and I'm still giving in to secret sins all the time. But if I could change and grow, I would be encouraged and say there really is something to this. It's not just me trying to convince myself. So I, I think there needs to be a balance. I think there's been a bit of an imbalance I don't think that we want to lessen our truth claims or lessen our support for what we believe to be true and helping people uh, to to be able to defend their faith and know what they believe. But that does need to be balanced out by a, a, a real deep experiential um, relationship with God that can come through disciplines. That is so good. Thank you so much for sharing that. John, thank you so much for coming back on the show a second week and discussing your book with me. Oh, Ryan, thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. John Marriott and his book, A Recipe for Disaster. You can go find more on him at johnmarriott.org. If you enjoyed this, you can share it with a friend and rate it on your podcasting app as well. Next week, as I mentioned, I'll be discussing six recent atheist role plays I did, one for an adult group and five for high school groups. Also, you can find all the videos that are being put out on Instagram, follow on Facebook, and send in your comments and questions at Instagram or Twitter at RyanPolly3. Hope you have a blessed day. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly. I'm